Hi, I'm Rochelle Vallab, MD and co-founder at Setcher Capital. Hi, I'm Brendan Mullen, MD and co-founder of Setcher Capital. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Rochelle, or should I say welcome back to you, Rochelle, and welcome to you, Brendan. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It's good to be back and always happy to chat to you. You were the first sort of non-overtly tech investor type finance professional that we had on the show. And so the response was quite interesting. Uh, what we didn't have an opportunity to talk about on the previous podcast is what would have inspired you to leave consulting? What sort of ideas you you know set out to, to act on? Who wants to go first? Sure. Maybe I'll take it since uh, Rashil has already, uh, his, his languid voice has already been on, on your airwaves. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's, there's two components of it. It's, it's one personal um, and the second is, is kind of optimizing for, for, for impact uh, and for, for returns, right? So on a personal level, Rashil and I were at Bain and we had a great experience there, uh, learned a lot of skills, met a lot of great people, um, but increasingly we wanted to you know, do the work after the slides. Uh, we learned a lot about various industries, and we um, saw the the capability that that you know Bain could bring. But then execution is is a big component of it. So that's why Setcha Capital is, and I'll, I'll kind of give you the the quick shorthand, is an operationally focused small private equity fund. Um, we invest patient capital in return for for equity and established South African. F, uh, SMEs in the FMCG and agribusiness space. Uh, we actually join the management team uh, by working day to day with them, and often bringing in a, an intern from a from a Bain, from a McKinsey, from an MBA to serve as the chief of staff. And then we grow the the SME to full potential. We often say they've gone zero to one. We take them one to ten. Um, now backing up a bit, you know why this model for for such a capital. Um, and if you look at you know we're, as Rashid and I have said. Uh, some, maybe a little bit um, arrogantly, we want a new model for private equity in in Africa. Um, and first, you start look, looking at private equity. Now, who are the best private equity players out there? Because as many of your audience likely know, private equity actually you outperform consistently. Unlike a asset management firm, I used to work uh, at a hedge fund. You know, the the best uh, hedge funds over a five year period they don't necessarily repeat over the next five years. But that does happen in private equity. Now, why is that? Well, it's fundamentally three things. It's deal flow, it's capabilities, and, and then underlying that, it's size of the fund. Often if they grow out of it, um, they're no longer outperforming. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we had a fund that could maximize the, the skill sets that we could bring and could enable us to write the, the right size checks to the biggest funnel of, of deal flow. And that's why we've tweaked the private equity model to be more like an accelerated search fund. And we tweaked it slightly across the find fund support value chain. Right? So in terms of, of find, we like boring businesses, essentially, in, in those sectors I mentioned. But they're established. They have positive gross margins. Um, and they have annual revenue of, of maybe 5 to 50 million rand. You know, these are not big you know, uh, tech plays. These are often family-run organizations that have already done a good job. Uh, they have a few clear capabilities, product market fit, and they just need a little bit of extra help uh, to get along the way. Uh, so presumably, there are a lot of smart, well-heeled uh, organizations out there who are turning up their noses at what you guys are trying to do. I want you to give me a sense of what the status quo is and why it's broken, and frankly, why everyone should be as gung-ho about doing it a different way like you guys are. 
So I think previously I said I, I don't think everybody should be a gun ho. I think such a capital plays uh, in a, a middle space here where you've got your private equity for your established businesses and then you've got your venture capital for your earlier stage businesses. Why we see this being different is and, – and So wait, do you feel they have a place and you guys are taking like white space in the middle? Uh, depending on the size, yes. So – uh, at the the very big private equity sizes, yes, that model makes sense there where you raise $500 million and then you take the 2% management fee and then that makes sense. And then the venture capital size where you, you write a check and then you have a board seat, maybe you provide some advisory services for an early stage startup, yes, that makes sense. But what happens when a company is already established? What happens when they want to take that growth step? Um, how do they get there? And, and if you look at, I think, Going back to the impact story of what Setch is trying to achieve, um, SMEs in South Africa in particular, there's two million of them. They employ two-thirds of the workforce. They contribute 45% to GDP. So this is an important sector, but who's focusing on it? It's not the venture capital companies. It's not the private equity companies. Um, and then how do you, if you are going to invest in them, how do you make it work? So you can't uh, raise $500 million or rands or whatever it is because then you have to write big check sizes and then there aren't that many companies. And then uh, in addition, if you look at the top three pain points for SMEs, broadly speaking in South Africa, it's uh, management talent, uh, channel access, um, and lack of funding. Um, so the way we structured Setcha was essentially to solve those three problems where we take those operational roles to assist the teams with the, the management talent. We've got shareholders uh, who are entrepreneurs or used to be entrepreneurs. We've got a great network from our days at Bain um, and we can open up these channels to these entrepreneurs and then obviously coming in with uh, some of this growth capital. But that growth capital is at a, a smaller check size and it's a lot more impactful when you can write a 2 million rand or 3 million rand check that you can immediately see the uptick in, in the, this working capital cycle for these small businesses. So Brendan, give me a sense of some of the people you would have tried to enthuse by sharing this thesis and looked to partner with perhaps in some way to take it off the ground and give me a sense of some of the responses you got that turned you down. And then reflect on that. Give me a sense of the ones that made you mad offhand or the ones that you know you sort of understand where they're coming from. Or There's a wink going on in the room. You guys can't see it, obviously, but they're winking at each other. Yes, guys, we're here to talk about this. I have to imagine there were a lot of no's, despite the whole Bain thing and being Oxford, you know, Cambridge. Oh. <laughs> Cambridge. Okay, so I nearly got that wrong. And, 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 I, and then I thought you, and I thought Brendan was like a Harvard dude, but no, he's Duke. But yeah, despite all that sort of flying around the room, your just consulting background, and what clearly is at this point a decent idea, um, talk me through some of the people who didn't believe and why. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll answer that question in, in, in two parts. Uh, number one, the people that you know didn't want to necessarily fund us, and, and why? And secondly, the people that actually have turned down money we want to give to them, which is which is also fair. The, on the first part, the the two and twenty model is the way private equity has been done for the last fifty years, and you know private equity has quintupled in the last fifteen years alone. So this- okay, so we're, we're, uh, most of our listeners aren't financial heads. So two and twenty. 
Sure, two percent management fee, as Rashil said earlier. If you if you want to cover office salaries and such, you want to raise a lot more money to be pulling that two percent management fee, and then the twenty percent is the carry. The way such is different is we just pay ourselves a nominal salary uh, that we earn in sweat equity from from our opcos, um, but we therefore we did not have to raise a ton more money in order to justify kind of and, and then uh, as you can see this office space you know think thankfully our, our cornerstone investor Kaleo capital it gives it to us at a subsidized rate and we get interns so we're very asset light we very low overhead we optimize for operations all right so that's how Secha very succinctly is different uh, and that difference this model structured more as a holding company than as an lp limited partner gp uh, general partner relationship that innovation concerns, you know, scared some people off. Um, and some people that were very interested in, in it, but DFIs that we would speak to, um, a num- you know, just a number of high net worths or organizations that, sorry, we like this patient capital model, but we're just not comfortable with it. Um, and that's what that's part of what we're here to prove with Secha. Uh, we, we would love more copycats. Uh, we're not necessarily very scalable as a team, but we're very replicable. So more people brought on this model that would be a success for us for this proof of concept because ultimately what we're trying to do is change the stocks and flows of growth and human capital into SMEs. Less focus and attention uh, and money, or maybe not less, but not 100% focus and attention and money on tech plays and startups like that, but more on the heartbeat of the economy, these SMEs. So that is some of the no's that we got, right? Because this model is innovative from a structural standpoint. Were they polite no's or were they? did they make you... Uh, sort of started doubt the sensibility of what you were trying to do. Uh, Andila, you know me well enough. I would love to say something provocative, but we had an amazing experience. We really did. Everybody was very respectful. I think they saw at least at least that it was an interesting model, but oftentimes it was it was too much for them to pull the trigger on get on kind of getting in bed with us. And basically, they said check back later, you know, as well. So you know, once you guys do prove it out, and if you want to raise additional funds, come back to us. Which is and that's the name of the game from a from a capital raise standpoint, right? The no's today uh, become yeses in three to five years, and and we're in it for the long haul. So so we're happy to do that. Um, I'd I'd also like to say that. We have approached companies to invest in them, and sometimes that's almost been harder because it's productizing you know our skill set from Bain, you know the MBAs. And when you talk to a founder of an SME that they're doing twenty five million rand a year and they have a great product, they don't necessarily see the value. So it's incumbent on us to to prove ourselves. Sometimes that's the channel access. Sometimes that's an insight into their price back architecture that they didn't realize. Um, and that's a good thing. That's good to get that no. We often say that the companies we invest in, we almost don't want them pitching us. We want to go out and pitch them. So that's part of the fun too. So I guess to, to summarize, we've got, we got a lot of no's. <laughs> uh, so it took a lot of persistence uh, to, to get even where we are today, which is still still very much the beginning of the journey. And so Rochelle, you know, this addressed the whole tech enablement thing, right? Because, you know, speak to the trendiness of sort of investing in tech startups or tech-enabled startups or businesses and why that's not how you guys have decided to to approach what's worth investing in. Sure. So I, I think our skill set, myself and Brendan, our skill set doesn't lie in tech. It lies in FMCG and agribusiness uh, sectors. So this is what we used to do at Bain. Um, we used to work for these large uh, businesses and we realized the, the, the tools and frameworks were just as applicable to SMEs. Um, I do see the tech world being useful, but I think 
if you look at job creation again, which sectors are the highest uh, job creators? It's in the trade, um, agriculture um, sectors. So this is where we can make our impact and such as impact mission is job creation. Um, but that being said, I think we mentioned this last time as well, that every company that we invest in needs to have some sort of technology component not necessarily to the business, but where technology can help it accelerate its growth. Um, so whether that's a cloud-based accounting software, or whether that's a, a mobile-friendly website or e-commerce platform, those are the tech tools that we liked to use um, that we think every business needs to take advantage of. Um, and it wouldn't be possible if there weren't people funding those e-commerce platforms or the payment gateways, etc. It's just not where our expertise lies. So in the context of, you know, what Rochelle just said, I mean, how do you engender like a healthy appreciation for preparing for, quote unquote, the fourth industrial, you know, revolution, as it were? Yeah, to, to echo Rochelle's point, these, these companies are certainly not Luddites. Um, every, I'm looking at the products of the three operating companies that we have now, and they're all tech enabled in some way and, and would not exist if not for recent tech. I mean, native child, so it's natural hair care for ethnic women. That was built on Instagram, right? Until recently, it was 80% sales were e-commerce. Now we're in more and more retail, and that's been, that's been smoothed out. But that could not have existed without Instagram, without support from Facebook and social media ads. Um, Biltong, uh, Stoffelberg Biltong. Um, so Stoffelberg Biltong is now in engine stores nationally. And how are we keeping track of all our sales reps? Well, using an app on a smartphone so we know where they are, when they checked in, taking a picture of their merchandising. That's an incredible tool very cheap, would have been so much more expensive um, just a few years ago. And yet it's still creating great jobs, right? These jobs aren't, haven't been taken away by tech. And these are still your classic nine to five jobs that, that pay well, uh, that maybe you, know, you don't find in tech. Now I'm looking at G-Step uh, shoes or BKLYN. That's the, that's the, the trendy um, um, private label shoe. Well, BKLYN when we added a few more uh, pay gates to the website, a few more uh, pay, payment applications, um, so not just sending uh, an EFT or, or, or just uh, send, you know, using a credit card, um, you know, sales tripled in, in month over month because, because of the fintech revolution that's going on. So a lot of these companies can succeed on the back of them. So it's incumbent upon us as, as investors and as operators with the entrepreneurs that we need to ride the waves with them. But uh, again, as Rochelle said, it's, it's not our play just to invest in, in pure tech. We don't take tech risk. We think that there's still so many great SMEs out there that can use a little bit of help. I mean, Secha is my wife's uh, native tongue. Uh, Songa means, it means search, right? So our idea is that we don't need to help build the next startup. You know, we're not there. The next great African company is already out there. It just needs a little bit of help. And that's the role that we're here to serve. And now, Rochelle, we've, we've had some conversations offline about... Well, I've shared with you my concern that um, a bubble is forming around the current sort of tech-focused VC approaches on the continent. I suppose I, I, want you, I want you to give me a sense of whether it's sound to say the, certain, the, the popular doctrines of VC that are mostly borrowed from Silicon Valley being applied to tech startups and startups in general. I think there's a lot of pressure on non-tech startups as well to, dis to display the sort of crazy traction, crazy growth or hyperscalability or whatever it is, you know, you need to sort of show to just prove one, that you're a startup and two, investable. What do you, what do you think is the most important thing for people to start to understand so that, you know, we don't 
create a precedent for a landscape where people are monetizing off value that hasn't even been created and you know just 2008 in a much smaller version all over again you know within the context of vc on the continent so it's a long question but i do you get a sense of what i'm asking so I'm going to do my standard disclaimer where I'm not a tech expert and, and a lot of what I'm going to say I've learned either from your podcast or just reading. Uh, Stop it. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> um I think it's it's so cliche, but people just really have to stop street, uh, treating Africa like Silicon Valley. The, the dynamics are just so different. Um, in the US, you've got 300 million people, um, so it's a huge market. You've got a lot more capital chasing uh, a lot fewer deals, and therefore that's why the valuations keep going up. And that's why you get investors investing in things like Juicero or, or you know, with, with crazy valuations for products that don't actually add any value. Um, but where I see the, the in the African context is if you're going to have, a, a, say, a tech startup in Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa, you're often going to start with a much smaller market um, with, obviously, ambitions to go uh, into the rest of Africa or the rest of the world globally. Um, and, and I think investors need to realize that where I think there's, there's this risk-averse nature for a lot of investors on the continent because you may not have the management talent or the, or the the pool of talent that you would say have in in Silicon Valley, um, so you can just throw money at the problem. Where um, I forget the guy's name in, in in Egypt who who sits with his opcos every week. Khalid Ishmael. Yeah, so so he's got a great approach to um, supporting his entrepreneurs, um, and and if I'm not mistaken, I think he has some tech plays in his portfolio, and I think that's what needs to happen. Um, uh, investors and and I think Brendan's literally got his sleeves rolled up right here. We we really have to get our sleeves uh, rolled up and, and get dirty. And um, I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take this community approach to to building the the ecosystem, if you will. Do you think um, I'm you know chicken little or little chicken little chicken little and and worrying that the the sky is going to fall, Brendan, around this issue? Um, because I really do think. It's a problem. Um, and the reason I dig, you know, Secha and the hybrid thinking that you guys espouse is because I feel like it's it's old school. There's something about it that just makes sense in the sense that, you know what I mean, find great businesses that are, you know, growing modestly yet profitably over, you know, sustained periods of time and, and you will make your money and that's cool. And, and, and you know, sometimes you'll, you'll find opportunities to like grow exponentially and that's great too and, you know, my problem is not with, you know, a, an investor who's committed to finding like something that's really rooted in tech or even something that has this amazing ability to to leverage tech to grow fast or like make exorbitant profits. Or I have no prof- problem with that in, in essence. My issue is with a culture, an investment culture that allows people to exit profitably without value being created. To me, that's just morally problematic and just bad business and there's going to be a bubble it'll burst and we're going to we're going to be holding the baby as a continent as you know as as a culture on the continent entrepreneurial culture am i making too much of this the way we see it is that tech investment absolutely has has a role uh, it's not ours um, the concern that I, I guess i could i could share that i that i see that you just described would be that we're Focusing on companies that won't create value where there's so many that can and, and do and then could do more if there's more capital. In, in a way, as I said earlier, we would love to have people 
you know, more people like us in this space to do this kind of human capital arbitrage. But right now, you know, our deal flow is it's, we don't compete on deals. Um, we, you know, we're seeking people out. There should be more money in this established SME space. Now, that said, I think there is a lot of good tech work going on. I mean, we, we really like what the Silvertree guys are doing over in Cape Town. They're creating that platform. They're doing a lot of smart things. I just, but on a, I believe a competing podcast, I heard the, the founder of Sweep South. And those unit economics sound, sound, sound amazing. So there are great things being done. So I'm less concerned about a bubble from a, from a financial perspective and, and more of a, just a missed opportunity cost to grow SMEs and grow, grow the human capital talent that goes along with that uh, because there's still so much opportunity. And, and again, one of the, the founding ethos of Secho is, as an American, I'm tired of seeing Burger King down the street or uh, you know, drinking, no offense to our friends at Nestle coffee, you know, from the, from the grocery store, they, these needs to be lo- local African brands. Uh, and then when you grow those local African brands, those profits stay here. And that creates that ecosystem of the next round of investment. So that's what we're aiming to do. If it can be done via tech, great, but it should also be looked at in the FMCG and agribusiness space as well. So Rochelle, you are in many respects, effectively, you know, I, I want to be respectful to your portfolio companies, but I mean, you uh, get, get deployed in your investees as essentially their boss, in a sense, right? And, and I use that as a segue to asking you to think about perhaps some of the leaders you've had to work for, under, with, in the past, that frankly, you'd have some things to say to in terms of like things that they could have been better at, right? So I'll give you a minute to think about you in your role in a, as, a, as a leader within the context of your investment firm, as a leader within or as part of a leadership team, perhaps within the investee setup, sitting on a board, as a COO resource, a CEO resource, uh, whatever is relevant. And then think about the last time you had to defer to someone, what would you like them that person you just thought of, what would you like them to know? Um, so I think I'll, I'll answer that by first negating what you first said. I don't, absolutely don't go in a, as a leadership position in any of the operating companies. It's what does that mean? Let's let, let's maybe unpack what leadership means and maybe the, what is what it is about the way I introed it that doesn't doesn't sit. I think what you said later makes a lot more sense as a CEO resource or a COO resource, right? So I am a resource that they can leverage um, to get something done. And obviously, we, we, Brendan and myself, will come with a different skill set, we'll come with a different network, advisors, mentors, whatever that is. Um, and we encourage our operating company uh, leadership teams to, to use us as they see fit. Obviously, we'll provide some input on how we think we could plug in best. Um, but again, it's just a CEO resource. So why is it important that that be super clear to you and perhaps your investees or and to people listening? Why is it why why was it really key that we 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 don't get that twisted? So I think it's because of the, the fundamental nature of the Secha model is we take minority stakes. We don't ever want to have majority stakes. We don't ever want to run the businesses um, or be the CEOs. We we think our role is to empower these entrepreneurs to grow their businesses and when they have a stake a majority stake in their businesses they're they're that much more incentivized to grow it so i think it's a fundamental part of secha's model is to not take controlling uh, ownership stakes and and not to be seen as a uh, authoritative investor coming in and dictating what needs to happen have you just described the ethos of your personal leadership style and what you guys are trying to go for Possibly, yeah. I think it's it's very much a collaborative uh, approach, and and I think 
the reason why we we've decided on this is it <clears throat> it's really difficult to go to operating company uh, someone who's been around for three years and, and want to take part of their baby that they really see this as their baby um, so we're here to tweak the model to see how, how we can fit within what works for entrepreneurs what works for investors uh, shareholders all of those uh, players in, in in the find fund support value chain um, so I, I definitely think it is this collaborative way of working maybe that is a succinct way of, of answering that so while you're thinking, Brendan, a more direct question, you must have had bosses who sucked, leaders who sucked. You might have had to work for them. There might have been clients. <laughs> you might be related to them. Uh, there might be people you know in your current circle. Um, seems like it's getting personal. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry? Same, seems like it's getting personal from the interviewer side now. No, no, not at all. <laughs> a brother that owes me money. <laughs> Not at all. Um, actually, I'm pretty lucky with that. Um, with, with my yeah, I've been fairly lucky, but I certainly have a, a laundry list of, of leaders I've had to work with or for that I could I could think of right now. And I want you to do that as well. So I want you to think about the one that probably gave you the hardest time, or the one that you perhaps promised yourself you'd never be like. And I want you to tell them what you wish they ought to know about either your experience, what you've learned, perhaps something t you could teach them being that you're a leader of a different sort now. Um, I, I think it has to do with the, the ego of leaders. Um, and if I think back to, to two examples um, of what you were describing, and maybe Brendan won't, won't like me for this answer, but... Um, it's not about Brendan, is it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's, he's, he's my partner. Um, I think what they need to realize is, A, you can leave your ego at the door. You don't need to always make the decision. You, you aren't probably aren't always right. And when I look at the the bosses that I've had in the past that, that have given me grief, um, I would like to tell them that, hey, this is a job. This is a faceless entity. Um, it, yes, it has a culture, but on the other side of it is a human being with a family and a life. And, and you've got to understand what's important for, for, for people, right? If your work's the most important thing in your life, great. But if your family is, then, you know, you need to recognize that. And I think that's how you should engage um, by understanding people's lifestyle choices or what's important to them and then working around that. Brendan, you've had far more time than Rachel to think about a response to this question. What would you say? Two things that it, that it kind of peaks, peaks in my my interest in my mind um and Rashil really covered one of them so i'll start with uh, the first one is is kind of doing putting on the you know the shoes or of the of the other person of your subordinate and that's why uh, you know the apprenticeship model is a big big component of setcha you know the skills transfer playbook uh, working alongside the entrepreneurs this is a big reason why we do that is because that's the best way to learn but that's also the best way to to get things done and understand how, how they get done which leads to the ego ego component um, it's funny, I was just on Saturday speaking at the Harvard Business School uh, Business in Africa Conference. Uh, so these are these you know, HBS, MBAs. You know, they asked for advice at the end of the, of the panel. I said, you guys are you know, the best and the brightest, and I'm sure you're, you've already been at Bain, McKinsey, or Goldman, or what have you, and, and you're going to learn a ton uh, if you haven't already. So absolutely hold on to those skill sets, but also know when to, to disregard them. So Rasheel and I don't use everything we learn at Bain. I'd say we cut out half because that doesn't work on a day-to-day -day basis with the SMEs. Now, that other half that's still there is huge. And that leads to, we don't always have the answers. I have learned so much from 
the executive team at Stoffelberg from the from the founder of Native Child. Um, and no, they they don't have MBAs, but they're super sharp. And if, just because their CV doesn't read as fancy as these Harvard Business School kids, doesn't mean that you can't learn from them. And that do, I, I wonder if that comes across as a little cliche, but it, it is so true. Because getting business done, you know, the way business is done, it, it requires a lot of components that aren't taught at university, and that you don't don't learn, you know, from a fancy corporate office. Uh, so that's that's a lesson that we try to re- remind ourselves all the time uh, when 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 we have a frustrating day, or when I was quite literally laughed out of a of a retailer. We had a meeting with a large a Pan African retailer two weeks ago. I had a launch plan PowerPoint deck. And they just laughed at me. And they said, come on, we do this over a handshake. And that's, and that's a lesson, right? It's a surprising one. I'm not entirely comfortable with it. But you know, these are lessons that you learn that sometimes business is done differently and, and, and done rightly because it's quicker or, or more, you know, uh, more efficient. Um, and those are the things that I, I think bosses I've had in the past wouldn't understand. They'd stick to their, to their 100%. No, we're going to go through this PowerPoint deck. Or they would you know, not realize that they could also learn by, by not using it. So guys, final question for you both. Um, give me a sense for something that might be trending in your lives, uh, you know, professional lives here at Sesha that might surprise the average person who, who may or not, may not be, you know, okay with <laughs> investments, with VC, VC hybrids, uh, PE hybrids. Yeah. I mean, I'm in your office right now and I, you know, I get a sense of, you know, the, probably be if i if i was a fly on the wall here long enough there'd be things like oh that happens here oh okay uh um give me a sense of like you 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 just mentioned one now i mean you you transported me into one of your pitches which i suppose in in the minds of a lot of people might be hey more of those go well or at least better than what you just described so that was revealing that was quite interesting to hear but in in terms of what's trending give me a sense i think for me it's it's uh, understanding or trying to Engage in entrepreneurial DNA. I think that we have three operating companies now, and we've met with a ton more. Um, and I'm internally trying to codify what makes a great entrepreneur. Um, I can I can feel it. I just can't articulate it. Um, so working with G Step, um, where the founders decided that they want a factory now, um, and just trying to I see why did they make that decision? What has driven them to? to have that gut feel that this is the right answer. And obviously I went and did the math and yes, it does make sense. Um, But what makes a great entrepreneur? And and this is part of the playbook that we're trying to codify because when someone does replicate the Secha model in a different industry, how do you identify greatness in an entrepreneur um, that you can work with? So I think that's my focus at the moment is is trying to build uh, something on PowerPoint that I intuitively feel. So that one day a bot does your job. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. So I have some advice for you on that front. I just reached into my laptop bag here. A book called The Villager by Faye Olubodon. Uh, the Villager, How Africans Consume Brands. Uh, this will help. It won't get you all the way there. Your bots will not be made, I can assure you, but it'll help a, at least a little. And I mean, being that, you know, you're born and bred here in South Africa, you, you at least have a head start on a lot of other people, not least Brendan, who perhaps was, wasn't so lucky, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think it's something about this culture or, or being part of the, of the culture that, that you'll have to intuit. 
well, he he married into it. So <laughs> I suppose he's evening the he's trying his best to even the playing field. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, what would you say is trending for you, uh, Brandon? Well, sure, and, and maybe I can even use it to, as a as a call out for for the next company we'd like to invest in. Uh, we very much would like to invest in what we would call a traditional trade company. Um, so maybe that they're not necessarily in modern retail, a much lower price point, and we have yet to. Um, and I, I say that as to what's trending. We have seen a lot of these kind of niche growth uh, products within larger markets. I mean, so Native Child is an example of that, right? It's hair care for ethnic women. Normally, you know, it's a big multinational that, that just makes a very, you know, wide tent product. Uh, and I think Santo found that, grew it on Instagram. Um, and now Native Child's a fantastic product today. It's growing like crazy. We'd like to do find a, a product, you know, in a similar kind of niche that can, you know consumers can kind of build today that we can clearly see, but we'd like to, to find it at a lower price point that you know maybe it's it's bigger in the townships and, and that's something that we are working on day in and day out because yeah I am American and you know I live in Parkhurst and I want to make sure that I am plugged in to the to the mass consumer because that is what is going to grow as South Africa can, you know continues to progress and those are going to be the decision makers going forward so we want to make sure that we understand them um, and that we that we're speaking to them uh, so um, yeah if, if there's any great companies that kind of fit the description of the model we described throughout you know this and then just now that you know if you're big in, in Alex you're big in Soweto we want to talk to you we want to give you growth capital and, and help you grow some more all right. Well, guys, thank you. It's been a, a great chat. Uh, thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Rochelle. Uh, Sesha Capital, check them out. Very happy to keep chatting to you. Yeah, thank you. Great to see you. And-